Talk Radio 77 WABC. Frank Marano. 
compared to what it once was. So unless we see those numbers of hospitalizations or, God forbid, deaths start to tick up, nobody should be worried yet. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're, well, I mean, if you have certain chronic conditions or if you're older or especially if you're not vaccinated and never had the disease before, you know, you should take, you should get the vaccine, um, get it maybe. The other thing is they're also better treatments available. There's uh, treatments like the, the Paxlovid, uh, which have been approved. Of the, and and uh, so if you're, especially if you're in a vulnerable um, uh, you know, condition, you, you definitely should have on hand those doses of those drugs so that uh, if, if you do get sick, you can take it you know, early in the disease. So I'm not saying do nothing. Uh, I'm, what I'm saying is don't, don't worry. Just take actions based on what we know, which is, you know, if you have, if you're, if you're, uh, uh, if you're, already uh, if you're unvaccinated and you're and you're older please get vaccinated if uh, uh, get get doses of Paxlovid around um, for the rest of the population don't worry so much live your life uh, China is apparently instituting the worst lockdown in Shanghai since the very beginning of this pandemic two years ago they have this policy in China of covid zero and it's apparently leading to very draconian measures in China, two questions on this front. One is um, is the variant, as best you know, is the variant that that China is dealing with now a new variant, and do we have any reason to believe that it is more or less dangerous than what we've been through already with the Grade A Wuhan variant, Omicron, or anything else? I think it's the, it's the Omicron variant. It might be some of the BA two variant that that's uh, going around also, but. I think it's the Omicron variant. Uh, the key thing there, though, is that their COVID zero policy, which they followed through the whole pandemic, now is revealed to be a utter failure. They have now, uh, I mean, hundreds of millions of people in lockdown states with human, basically, what you call a human rights violation. They're separating parents from kids. They have killed childhood uh, uh, household pets like cats and dogs. Um, they, you know, sort of locked people in the house. There's in Shanghai. There are reports of people essentially unable to get food for a month. Um, I mean, it's a catastrophic failure of, of a policy, um, and it won't achieve its goal. It, the, the disease spreads regardless of policies like this because it's a very highly infectious disease, and you have no choice but uh, eventually you have to come out. Um, so I think uh, the idea of COVID zero, and there's also animal, you know, animal vectors of this. So the idea of COVID zero, I think, uh, unfortunately, the Chinese policy shows us it was a folly to, be, to even think we could, it was possible to do that. But the, the best we can really do is, is live with the virus. Um, but with the tools we have, we can live with the virus without so much harm as we had early in the pandemic. So already this this COVID zero policy and the accompanying lockdowns in Shanghai have had a devastating impact on China's economy. And except for the price of gas in America, maybe ticking down a little bit because Chinese motorists aren't driving to work. This has the potential to have a, a pretty devastating effect, uh, uh, impact on the American economy as well, not only because of the stock market and uh, and things of that nature, but because the American economy is so interconnected with China. My question is for you, Dr. Bhattacharya, is irrespective of what people might think of the, the leadership of China, and I've certainly been very critical they know how to add. They see what this is doing to their economy, and they see that the original lockdown policy was ineffective at, uh, at, at stopping the spread of COVID. Why would they do this? What is the possible rationale? I mean, I, I don't know for, for certain, but what I'm looking, what I've seen is that 
the Chinese leadership took a lot of pride in their success with COVID while the rest of the world suffered, Mm. their parents' success with COVID. And they trapped themselves in their own rhetoric. And so unless they COVID to zero using these draconian policies, which unfortunately to say will ultimately fail, uh, regardless of the catastrophe they're causing, they'd rather have that. They'd, They'd likely view it as a threat to their own own success as a government unless they get COVID to zero with these policies. Mm. They put, they, they, they've essentially fooled the rest of the world into adopting these policies, and now they're trapped by their own, own you know, apparent success. Philadelphia is bringing back, or, or they have brought back, apparently, indoor masks. Uh, in your view, right move, wrong move, what do you think? I, I don't understand it, actually. The, the efficacy of mask mandates is nearly zero. Uh, the Places that have had mass mandates have effectively the same uh, pattern of COVID cases as the rest of the, of the world that doesn't have mass mandates. Um, so I, there's no good evidence, there's no randomized evidence that suggests that masks are highly efficacious compared to, say, the vaccine, for instance. So it, it seems like it's essentially uh, bringing back a failed policy that didn't work and created an enormous amount of social division. It just seems short-sighted. Um, and, uh, you know, I've heard the Philadelphia mayor, I think, try to argue for it, saying things like, well, it's, there's a lot of minorities. But why do minorities, um, the fact that there's a lot of minorities, mean that there should be uh, an ineffective policy? I mean, you shouldn't harm, you'd be harming the minor, minority populations by telling them that these mass mandates work when they don't. So I don't think it's I don't think it's worthwhile to bring it back. Again, we have a much more immunized population. We have a population that has the vaccines. We have a population that has had COVID and recovered, and thus is protected against severe disease. What's the purpose of the mask mandate? Yeah, I, I can't figure it out. Which makes what we're hearing in New York even more troubling. Uh, apparently, New York City is moving to what's called a yellow alert level, which means there's a medium risk of community spread. The mayor, our mayor here in New York said on Monday that he's considering bringing back the mask mandate in public schools as well as reinstating the key to New York City mandate, which requires vaccinations for certain places. Uh, I'll assume you don't think that's wise. And uh, if the mayor's listening to us right now, which he might be, he's a bit of a night owl, what would you say to him as he's considering these measures? I'd say to the mayor, focus on things that, that actually can work. Don't focus on low-yield items that don't actually protect populations. I think uh, segregating populations based on the vaccine status doesn't work because the vaccinated and the unvaccinated both spread the disease. Don't focus on mask mandates don't work. Instead, focus on upgrading ventilation in public spaces, uh, protecting vulnerable people, and making sure that the, that the vaccines are available to the people who haven't yet been vaccinated, especially the vulnerable people who haven't been vaccinated yet. Um, this focus, for instance, in, in New York on toddlers, I mean, for a, for a little while, I think New York City was the only place on earth requiring two to four-year-olds to I, I, Unfortunately, I believe we still are. Uh, I've lost track of what the current rules are, but I think we still are. Unbelievable. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it is completely ineffective. And for some uh, toddlers, it's probably harmful to the development. You know, if you're hearing impaired, it's, I've, I've heard reports from lots of uh, parents uh, that, that their children have trouble with language development and other things because they're looking at the faces that are masked. And for autistic kids, for instance. Uh, so I don't really understand this focus on such a low-yield uh, 
intervention when, in fact, high-yield interventions are available. Make sure that everyone who's vulnerable in New York City has Paxlovid available so that if they get sick, they, they can have early treatment. I mean, that would be much more effective than these, than these treatments, than these interventions that don't do very much. Um, in fact, they might even harm people because they make people think they're safe when they're not. They've uh, struck down the rule requiring face masks on airplanes. Apparently, some people are upset about that. And uh, there's even talk of uh, an appeal by the CDC. How effective was that mask mandate on public transportation like uh, Amtrak and on airplanes? I mean, I think there's vanishingly few people that have been identified to get had gotten sick on an airplane, especially modern airplanes. And the reason is simple. The airplanes have fantastic air filtration. And the air filtration is the key to reducing the, the disease. The disease, what it does is it sits in the air in little aerosols that uh, that stay for a long time. And so if you have a place like an airplane where the air is, recircula- is circulated very frequently, it just doesn't have enough time to stay in there and infect other people. The masks don't accomplish anything of any value, really, other than to divide people and, and to make people miserable. Um, so I don't really, under, again, don't understand why people are upset about the removal of an ineffective measure. Uh, in fact, I don't even actually don't think most regular people are upset. I, mean, I don't know if you saw these videos, Frank, of people cheering when it was announced that the mask mandate was lifted. I did, and Taking yeah. the masks off. <laughs> I mean, I think for the most part, regular people understand these are just uh, these, these are these are like interventions that are very ineffective and uh, and and are happy to see them go. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's certainly how I feel. But uh, then, you know, I went to a Broadway play on Saturday, and you had to have a vaccine card and a mask just to see the play. And uh, it really makes you feel like you're living in two worlds because then you go out and step right outside the door. Everyone whips their mask off and is talking with one another like they're normal people. And then just in the confines of that theater, everyone's masked up and has to show identification and vaccine proof. It's just it it all looks to me like a a great deal of, of theater now. Um, We're talking with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, professor of medicine at Stanford University, a research associate with the National Bureau of Economics Research. Back in late December, early January, it seemed like everybody that I know got the Omicron variant, even if they were vaccinated. Most people didn't have um, much of a serious reaction to it. If folks got sick uh, in late December or early January with a, a positive test or a mild case of COVID back then, how likely are they to be protected by the current surge that we're seeing right now? Quite likely protected. There's a lot of cross-protection between the BA2 variant and the, and the Omicron variant that was circulating back then. Um, the Omicron variants are not that far apart from each other, such that, they, that the BA2 evades the immunity provided by natural by, by uh, COVID recovery. Now, if you'd had the Delta, like I did actually in, in August of last year, um, then I'm, you know, I'm, I might get it again. But the key thing is to remember is that even if I do get it again, it's very likely that it's going to be mild compared to what if I, if I was just immune naive. The protection that we get from immunity uh, that we get from COVID recovery is actually quite good. Um, and I don't really understand why public health hasn't emphasized this fact, because uh, that, I think, sets a lot of, would set a lot of people's minds at, at, at relative ease. Uh, I mean, I, 
you have to be careful because there are people who, especially much older people, maybe people over the age of 70 or 80, um, who, uh, who have a lot of chronic conditions that might get some, um, you know, sort of suffer from more severe disease if they were yet. That's why I don't say that we don't do nothing. We, we just make available good treatments, um, make sure everyone's vaccinated, um, especially in those age groups. And that actually is enough. Children in particular don't face very high risk from the disease if they, are, if they get infected, even unvaccinated children. Um, so I don't, it, it, the, there's the thousand fold difference in the risk of severe disease from the oldest to the youngest. So I think, um, that's, I, I mean, my, my general uh, idea around this is let's take seriously population immunity. Let's take seriously what the, how, how severe the threat is. It's just a much less of a threat than it was two years ago. And uh, in ter- you alluded to people that are at-risk populations, the importance of them getting vaccinated. I, I certainly agree, and I got vaccinated and boosted. Who do you think should be getting the booster? Are you an advocate that everybody that's eligible for getting the booster should get uh, should get boosted? Or are you somebody that thinks only uh, those at risk populations, the elderly and those with pre-existing conditions, those folks should be the ones getting the booster? I mean, I think it's 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 like any medical thing. It should be something that depends on the patient. Right. So, for instance, if you've got two vaccine doses and then also a COVID recovered, have pretty complete protection. Mm-hmm. The booster doesn't provide a ton of protection above and beyond for, for people like that. Now, there could be exceptions. So, for instance, again, older people might need to get boosted even though they got, got uh, COVID already. Um, so, I think it really it depends on your particular clinical condition. And it's something you should talk with your doctor. I'm very uncomfortable with public health making sure. blanket medical advice when they don't really know the, 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 the situation of, every, of, of, the, of the patient. I think instead they should be telling people, go seek good advice from your doctor about whether it's appropriate um, for for the, the biggest bonus the biggest like benefit it co- comes to people who've never had the disease before and have not been vaccinated yeah i knew there was a reason i haven't seen you in these commercials telling people that you've never met exactly what sort of treatment they should be pursuing <laughs> um one thing that a lot of folks have uh, raised raised concern about is something called long covid can you can you explain briefly what long COVID is, how that's affecting people, and who tends to be at risk for that? So I think it's it's a couple of different kinds of conditions. So if you had a very severe bout of COVID, you had landed in the ICU for a long time, you know, anyone that lands in the ICU with a big respiratory condition will take a long time to recover. So there's that group of people. But that's actually a relatively small fraction of the people that the people like to think talk about. The other idea for long COVID is people who months, one, two, three months after they recover from COVID still have some lingering symptoms, you know, generally often non-specific ones like fatigue, um, mild headaches, things like that. Um, that you can think of the analogy with like mono. I don't know if you ever had mono, Frank, but like, you know, it's, the, 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 the symptoms of mono can last months and they're, they're often like those kinds of fatigue-like symptoms. Um, so it's not like any, no, no other virus that can do this. Um, there have been a number of studies th- that look at long COVID in both adults and kids. And the key thing is the best studies have a control group. They identify a set of people who never got COVID and then followed them for some months alongside people who got COVID and followed them. There's actually very little difference in the rates of long COVID symptoms for the control patients and the patients who actually got COVID. 
a lot of the, the symptoms then in that second group, not the patients who got in the ICU, but the second group, those patients, um, I think, are, you know, during a lockdown, you are, are going to be, fit. I mean, you know, there's high rates of depression and anxiety during lockdown. You're going to see people who are anxious, even if they never got COVID, who have some of these symptoms. And so I'm not so worried about long COVID. Um, I don't, I'm not saying it can't ever happen. And then I think, um, for instance, like actually it turns out if you get the vaccine, it actually reduces the long COVID risk. So I think there's things you can do. I wouldn't spend a lot of time worrying about it if I were if I, if I were folks again, unless uh, the, the, the key thing is to avoid having severe about of the thing that lands you in the hospital. Um, and for that, we have tools, things like the vaccine and, and, and the drugs, the Paxlovid and other drugs. Whenever I've discussed COVID on the radio, I immediately get emails, phone calls, other types of correspondence from people citing someone they've discovered on the Internet or someone they've heard on an infomercial on another radio station talking about the benefits of X in terms of reducing the spread of COVID. Sometimes it's uh, vitamin C. Sometimes it's uh, steam therapy. Sometimes it's uh, whatever else, something from a flower, some herbal supplement. Are there any meaningful statistical studies that show any non-pharmaceutical treatment or preventative measure having an actual measurable effect in limiting the spread or helping the treatment of COVID? Well, I think vitamin D is very important. And so people that are short vitamin D tend to have worse bouts when they get COVID. Uh, I don't think it stops you from getting it, but I think uh, you can make make it worse if you do get it. Um, The other thing is, you know, I think generally if you are uh, fitter, less you're 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 not overweight um the more you exercise all of those things actually help quite a bit if you were to get COVID. and the nice the bonus there is that if you do you know sort of improve your lifestyle uh in those ways you don't just benefit from covid uh you also benefit from reductions of risk from covid but also you benefit from reductions in risk of diabetes you'll feel you'll get more energy i think um those are non-pharmaceutical interventions that are actually quite effective um, for lots of reasons, and that is what I've been telling, telling people all through the pandemic, likely even before. Do you think there's any link between the harsher reactions to seasonal allergies that we've seen and the masking requirements that a lot of folks have had to deal with for a while, or is it just uh, the mild winter? I mean, I think what's happened is that, that the um, for two years, a lot of people have not been exposed to mm. pollens and things that have stayed stayed well you know, indoors for a lot of the time, um, or they just haven't been they haven't got the normal exposure they, they they get. So the allergies are worse because we're sort of like getting exposed <laughs> for the first time in two years to things that that, uh, that that you know we generally before had uh, routine exposure to. I think that's probably the most most likely cause of it. All right, Dr. Bhattacharya, I appreciate you being so generous with your time and so comprehensive with your answers. I'll look forward to doing this again soon. Thank you, Frank. Always a pleasure. Appreciate it. Uh, That's Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, professor of medicine at Stanford University.